I have these friends, Dan and Sheila. I actually they're podcast hosts. Welcome to Profiling Criminal Minds. I'm Dan. I'm Dr. Redmond. And we are back for two episodes of Millennium. One significantly more baffling than the other. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched Force Majeure twice. You know how I talk about how this show has no interest in explaining itself? This is like the best example of that ever. Okay. Now, can I ask you something? Of course. Did you learn anything by watching it twice? Well, no, I did. Um, I know it sounds weird to say it that way, but I did because I thought I knew why everything was happening. And when I watched it the second time, I'm like, okay, I know why everything is happening. Okay. But it's it's not like it's clear. Like, I don't think I was wrong to have to watch it a second time. I don't think I'm a dummy for not getting it, the like, fully getting it the first time. This is an obtuse episode of television. You know? No. They, it is, okay. it is pointedly, it. I, I am going to explain this episode. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's weirdly unclear. And we might, we may love Brad Dourif. But... Brad Dourif, by the way, Brad Dourif's fantastic in this. He's so good in this episode. I know. The tragedy in him of the, it's like, uh, well, I mean, it's it's what the whole episode is about. It's about, okay, well, what do you do if you're right? You know? Yeah. Like, what if you're a doomsday guy and you're right? How does that, what does that do to you as a person? And, oh my, okay, so, uh, the episode <laughs> starts with just an amazing image. Oh my no. God. <laughs> wow. And oh. I had forgotten, for whatever reason, I had forgotten some of this. Yeah. Rightly so. <laughs> oh, yeah. But what an image to kick off an episode with. Oh, it. my Lord. There's a brutal hailstorm. A hailstorm so big that as we are shown, literal bricks of ice are falling out of the sky. And, you know, a woman is just walking. A uh, grad student. Right? Yeah. She Because she's 24 years old. That's important later. Uh, is walking out through the, um, uh, walking out through them. Everybody's telling her to get under the, uh, get yeah, under the, the, yeah, get under the, the awning with everybody else until the, the hail breaks. Uh-huh. And she sees that her friend is smoking. So she's like, Hey, uh, give me the cigarette. And the minute well, her no, friend stretches her hand out. Stretches her hand out. You're right. She visual. She just stretches she her hand out for the cigarette. Oh. She doesn't say a thing. And the moment the cigarette touches her, she bursts into flames. Which, again, a woman bursting into flames in the middle of a hailstorm is quite a visual. Yes, and it's raining. And too. it's yeah. Oh no, it's pouring rain. Well, it, it usually is yeah, during a hailstorm. It burns up completely. Yeah, burns up completely because she's totally covered in some kind of an accelerant, as we'll find out. Later, when CCH Pounder gets there. Gosh, she's so... Cheryl Andrews is so great. I love that character. She's so much fun. Oh, yes. Uh, so, yes. All right. Uh, so, obviously, you know, this is a messed up situation, but Frank does not get called in. No. Uh, next we see Frank. He's with Jordan at home, getting a call from... Uh, 
getting a, a call from Catherine, who's dealing in victim services, talking to the parents of this dead girl who set herself on fire, who can't believe she would have committed suicide because that's just not who she is. And they're freaking out. And she says, someone who knows, Fra- who works with Frank is there. And yeah. he's like, someone for the Millennium Group. And she gives him a name. And he's like, well, I haven't met everybody yet, but I have no idea who you're talking about. Yeah, it was just Dennis. because Dennis. she didn't Yeah, she didn't get the last name. name. Right. Oh, man. So, and you just see the back of his head. He's talking to the parents. And he's been very useful oh, to yeah. the parents. Incredibly comforting, she says, to the parents. Yes. Yeah. I think he's been course. very helpful. Uh, so then, but she gets off the phone with Frank, and Dennis has disappeared. Yep, he's just left. Yeah. Oh, so Frank calls Peter, and he decides to take this case, because it is so weird. And Peter said, okay, you know, obviously, uh, we'll put the resources of the group on this. Yeah. Because he trusts Frank's opinion on this stuff, because why would you not? This is just weird. It's Frank Black, and this is this is a weird situation. He completely yeah. understands how it is worth the Millennium Group looking into it. And you know, he does ask. He does ask Peter at, about anyway. Dennis. Yeah, about Dennis. And Peter's and, like, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is. And then, and there is, but he confirms that no one from the Millennium Group is working on the case. No, that is the important part. So now we've got a mysterious figure at the edges of this case, played by Brad Dourif, so you know it's going to be important. Not that we've seen him yet. No. Ah, uh, so here's so Frank goes to talk to the uh, the friend, uh, the friend with the cigarettes from the yeah, start of the gave, episode that gave her the and cigarette. She's in her office smoking, and she says, "Close the door. I'm not supposed to smoke in here." <laughs> you think I'd give this thing up after? Yeah. Yeah, after that, you'd think I'd quit, but no. Uh, It's, again, great moment. All right, and so he comes in to ask her about it, and she's pissed off because all of the questions he's asking, his she says his quote-unquote partner just came in and asked all the same questions and promised that when Frank showed up, he'd not just be asking questions, but be able to explain the situation. Also... She, he said that Frank would want to look at this, and it's a pic. No, and no, it's Frank, a... no. Frank goes. No, you got. You got to put it in order. Frank goes over to look at this, the the planets in alignment. Yeah, thing, and she says right? that he thought and you would want to see that. Said. Yeah. Oh yeah, he said you would look at that. Not not that you would want to see it, but you would look at that too. Yeah, exactly. That is just that's little... true. But it makes but yeah, a difference. It does make a difference. All right. So then Your Frank goes out like, to the place where yeah. the uh, where the girl killed herself. And there is a... a Mount uh, Oh, yeah, exactly. You know, there is a little... What's the word I'm looking for here? Memorial. Yeah. But I thought there was a specific word for the kind of memorial that people do when they just drop flowers in a place. But I'm not... It's not coming to me. So I'm not yeah. going to worry about it. Uh, but anyway, so... And he notices that there is a group, there's a line of lights leading down a walkway that look essentially just like all of the planets in alignment from the Astrolab leading to where she burned herself. And finally, Brad Dourif makes his appearance. Yep. (laughs) 
to say that he wanted Frank to figure it all out for himself before he showed up. Yeah. You understand what's happening here. And now, and he just like, he just explains what's going on. He explains why he's there, explains what's going on. And it's, it's fantastic. Scenario of the end times and the planets coming in alignment. Hasn't done this in 6,000 years or whatever. And uh, I know in 6,000 years. And we have started the 1,000 day countdown to when there is going to be a massive uh, tectonic shift. You know, California is going to fall into the ocean and all over the world, you know, there are going to be massive floods. The year 2000. May 5th. May 5th, the year 2000. Spoiler alert. That didn't happen. It didn't happen. None of that happened. Spoiler alert. The planets align all the time. And, uh, I mean, yes, specific planetary alignments are weird. But the fact is the moon it has way more effect on Earth's uh, on than Earth than any of the other planets to do, which are way too far away to have meaningful gravitational effects on us. Basically, only the sun and the moon affect us in any meaningful way gravitationally. But it's a hell of an episode anyway. I mean, it doesn't yeah. matter that it's nonsense. It's such an incredible episode. But it was nonsense that was out there. It was People nonsense that was out there at the time. And, Remember, yeah. I'm a Aquarius to boot. Oh, there you go. Started way back, you know. Uh, so Frank, uh, of course, you know, now that he knows who Dennis is, is able to, you know, Peter Watts shows up and uh, says to Dennis that, you know, it's like you were supposed to stay away. And we find out that this is a guy who was looking into a cult around the Zodiac, uh, whatever that means, right? The, the, well, when we the were Zodiac doing... Killer, the Zodiac... Yeah, that's what I was going. Zodiac Killer, Zodiac... Zodiac like, the Zodiac? Like, what, what are you talking about here, Peter? I'd like a little clarity. The people of the sun? I yeah, exactly. Know. Like, explain to me what exactly you mean here. But anyway. Uh, and he found out about the group, and he has been obsessed with them since. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, they gave themselves that weird name, the Millennium They are the Millennium Group. Like, they invite this kind of attention, I think it's fair yeah, to come say. On. <laughs> like, come on. To a certain extent, you guys are asking for this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so he uh, he has been obsessed with them. And no, he doesn't work with them, but he does know about them. And of course, you know, he definitely seems to be right about this. Because he is able to predict. He says that there will be a river of blood. Right, he yeah. said that there are going to be massive ice storms and a river of blood to let people know that the thousand days have begun, the countdown to this tectonic shifting of everything. Yep. Yeah, and uh, the episode is pretty fantastic. Now Cheryl Andrews shows up, and we get the autopsy. Right? Yep. Oh. Oh, we get the autopsy and we find out that she's, you know, scarred herself and drew the symbol in her palm. Yep. Ugh. Um, yes. Uh, to, to, you know, let you know that she's... Which which astro... I'm trying to remember. Which astrological symbol is it for which planet? I don't 
I'm blanking on which one it was. But the point is, it's again goes down to the astronomy behind all of this. I, it, it, it is a sign that of the alignment, right? Yeah, it is I a sign of the planets aligning. Yeah, I don't think it was a specific planet. No. It's just a circle with a line. A line through it. Yes, you're right, because it represents planetary alignment. Yeah, it represents planetary alignment. That's it's awesome. the astrological symbol for planetary alignment. Yeah. Uh, and we find out that uh, uh, the the strange part is, so she is, inter, uh, like, the normal way for people when they burn alive is to end up in what they call the pugilist pose, because your muscles, um, they atrophy uh, quickly, and so it pulls you together like you're hunched over. Uh, and you got your hands up like you're boxing, hence pugilist pose. And she, rather strangely, has her fingers interlocked in front of her. Yes. In a prayer pose that she has managed to do, despite the fact that she was literally on fire. So they're yep. like, okay, this is obviously, they d they're sure it's a, um, a suicide, but they don't know, you know, in service of what. Yes. None of her friends can tell them. Yeah. Her parents have no clue. But, and this is the key part, they do find out that she was adopted. Yes. This is, but it wasn't like any clear, it was not a legal adoption. It was yeah. a, the baby showed up one day kind of adoption. Yeah. Oh, so, man. Then we move to. Girl number two. Girl number two. Who looks a lot like girl number one. Yeah, another blonde girl. Yeah. Who we see her cut the symbol into her arm and uh -huh. press it down onto a piece of paper to leave the symbol in her room. Then she goes out to... Uh, a dam. Yeah, a dam. And she jumps off the dam. Is it the same dam from the well-worn lock? I don't know, but probably... Probably. I mean, it's just probably, like, if they had already got the permission to shoot there once, they probably went and shot there again. But yeah. what's important it is, at the same time, Frank is looking up the concept of a river of blood. Yes. Because that is what Dennis has told him is going to be the next sign of the apocalypse. Yep. And they find out about how, what, what they think might have caused the Red Sea to become red. And yeah. that... They actually iron from a volcanic explode iron ash from a volcanic explosion yeah. may have caused the Nile to turn red. Right? Yeah. So it's like this river of blood is not impossible. No, and this one is also but there were two rivers that had turned red mm -hmm. recently. This was one of them. And so Frank sees that at the same time that this river has turned red in uh right uh, near yeah. here. At the same time the river has turned red, a local girl has gone missing. Yeah. And so he looks uh he looks at the plans and he's like, Okay, well, she ended up uh she probably ended up here. He calls the local cops, tells them to go look for a body, and he's right. He was exactly right about where the girl ended up. Yeah. And so now they've got two dead bodies, and things get super weird because yes. when uh, the autopsy when the autopsy happens, because both girls are blonde girls, but one is 27 and one is 17. Sorry, one is 24 and one is 17. They both yeah. have this really strange, this exact same light blue eyes, but with a strange ocular, like, uh, 
division in it. So there's like a gap in the iris. Yep. And they both have the exact same one. Yeah. And they're twins, it turns out. But. Born seven years apart. Yes. And this one also ended up being adopted. And then, you know, but they look remarkably alike. Not that, you know, you can't do the exact because the Mm -hmm. one was burned. But yes, they look remarkably alike. We can figure out. Oh, yeah. So they're identical twins born seven years apart. And so Cheryl explains how what they do in cattle is they fertilize an egg. Well, uh, not, not, it's not really cloning. No. They just artificially create twins. They fertilize an egg. And then as the egg split every, uh, once the egg is split about five times, they separate it out into two halves. And then once each of those have separated out five times, they split into two halves. And you can do that to create about 20 uh, identical cows. Yes. And so what she says is, uh, no, no OBGYN would admit to this, but you could do this with humans, no problem. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. and each of these girls had seven fertilized, or seven Seven eggs, eggs because they've been taking fertility drugs. Yes. Yeah, they'd been taking fertility drugs, despite the fact that neither one of them, obviously, you would imagine is looking to get pregnant. One of them is a high school student. One of them is a grad student. Neither of them are in any kind of a relationship. Yeah. Why are they suddenly looking to get pregnant? Yes. And they've got, and the thing is, is that as, as she, Cheryl says, we found this weird chemical in the burn victim, but I, she said she just put that off to something. But no, it's the same thing. And that's exact same chemical. Yeah, the fertilization drugs mm-hmm. were being used. They each had seven, seven eggs. Yeah. This is significant. Oh yeah, it's you know so, but they both which them. by the way when they uh, open their up are lined up like the planets. Get yes. it? Because of the seven planets that are going to be in the alignment. I don't know how that works biologically, but it's a nice visual. Well, you know, <laughs> hey, all of it is just weird. You just have to suspend your disbelief for that one. Disbelief. You know, it just let's just go with this episode. You don't think about it, which is why you had to watch it a second I time. I did. So Brad Dourif, he goes to see Brad Dourif and Brad Dourif is right. And he says, how'd you know about the river of blood? And Brad Turf says, I read Revelations. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's all it took. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. And and this is when we see what the show is about, right? Because, he, you know, now that Brad Dourif knows about these two dead girls, he's horrified because, as he said, I imagine that if anybody knew the truth, they would be a good person. Yes. Like, they would want to save the world and they would want to be the world to be a better place because that's all he wants. And this is what the episode is about. The episode is about if you actually know the world is ending. Like, if you are 100%, exactly. How do you react? What do you do with that information? Yeah. And he has never known. This character, Dennis, has is 100% certain the world is ending on this day. Like, it is going to destroy everything, this tectonic realignment. And so the question is, what does he do? And so Frank says, okay, well, where are you going to be? Like, you're 100% sure this is going to happen. Where are you going to be May 5th, the year 2000? 
And so he tells him about this place in Idaho, which is this perfect town because it is 4,000 feet above sea level and 500 miles from the coast. So he's like, it is as far as you can get from any tectonic plate while also being massively above sea level in case of huge flood flooding. He's like, this is the perfect place to hide. And so they're like, okay, well, you know, I'm sure you're not the only one who's figured that out. So they head off to Idaho. And oh. they go this wonderful place. Oh my god, this building. And the minute, because they've been talking about the concept of Noah's Ark, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a great flood. Yeah. You have to think about Noah and Noah's Ark. And they go into this building and you see it right away to the yeah. point where, like, when you wrote this episode, like, was this episode written because they knew about this building? Like, <laughs> with the Ark roof? With the Ark roof? And uh, I think the thing that might be a prop they built themselves is also all of the supports are like, uh, essentially all the roof supports are meant to bend and shake and absorb vibration. So this is a, this is a giant earthquake proof building that happens to look like an arc. Yes. And so they search the place and they find out that like in this giant facility, which spoiler alert is the doomsday bunker. In this giant facility, there is a room that the facility manager doesn't know about. Well, it shouldn't, the lock, well, he knows. Because the locks, well, yeah, but it's like nobody goes yeah. in there. It's just a storage room, but the locks have been changed. Yeah, just in this one door. And it turns out that when the, exactly. And so they break in and the room is completely empty except for a box on the wall. And of course you're like, is this a bomb? That's the first thing they have to think. They're cops. So they, you know, they carefully pry, you know, they pry it off the wall and inside is a telephone switcher. So people have been using this to dial in and secretly keep track of people. Yeah. With, and what happened, with untraceable phone calls. Yeah. Well, they knew that these girls, I guess, had received phone calls or talked to somebody. But they don't. Exactly. Each one of them had talked to somebody just before they killed themselves. But they yeah. didn't know where the phones was coming, a uh, phone were coming from. And now they know. Yeah. It was from this switcher. And so. Frank is like, okay, well, they couldn't, like, this building didn't happen accidentally. Who designed the building? The guy's like, oh, a woman who lives at uh, this farm on the outside of town. And he's like, you know, the crazy part is I still remember her phone number. It's 555. And then Frank's like, it's 555-2000. Right? <laughs> of course it is. Of course it is. Because May 5th is 55-2000. Yeah. Oh, so good. And so they go out there, they drive out there, they find out that, uh, meanwhile, the background check that Peter Watts has been doing has found out that, like, blonde girls, like, creepy platinum blonde girls have been disappearing from all over the states. Yeah. And there are, like, 20 of them. Yep. Oh. It's so and good. And so they yeah. drive out there. We see them stalking the farm from the distance. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe we didn't mention this yet. This is embarrassing. We have cut away uh, to a man in an iron lung. Yes. And in case you don't know what an iron lung is, if you're paralyzed, back in the day, there was no way to have um, you breathe, essentially. Right? Uh, I mean, how would your, how would your well, lungs work? 
And so yes. what they, the solution to this used to be that they would put your body, everything but your head, inside a airtight container. And it would put air pressure in to push air out of your lungs, then pull the air pressure out to essentially inflate your lungs by lifting your chest through negative pressure. And it was the only way people could breathe before they had advanced, you know, breathing yeah. <laughs> apparatuses. If you go and look at the documentaries and early stories, yeah. um, you see iron lungs. Um, it's amazing. Fact, like, it's just was, an amazing yeah. piece of technology. The easiest place to see it is in probably episode one or two of the Mia Farrow documentary. Or a little movie called The Big Lebowski. Oh, yes. The Big Lebowski. <laughs> yeah. Technically um, the easiest way to see it. But yeah, it's it's uh, just yeah. a, a, it looks so bizarre because people just have to lie there all day and they have these mirrors they would put over their face so they could talk to people. Yeah. It just, it looks, it's a very strange looking piece of technology, but it's like the only way to be able to keep breathing. So, you know, you, you did what you had to do to stay alive. Yeah. Uh, okay. So there's a man in the air lung and we saw him right at the start of the episode saying it has begun. So before, yeah. and then we saw him again being informed that two of the girls weren't coming. Yes. Because when we look out we, uh, over the yard, right, in front of this um, farmhouse, we see cars from all across America. Yeah. Like, they're able to identify the license plates as being from all across America. And we're like, oh, okay. So this is all of the, as you say, the girls. twins, the clones, all of the girls coming yeah. home. Oh, and so they just, the cops just do what cops do. They bust in. <laughs> the head of the local cops is like, we're not ending up with a Jonestown situation. Let's just go in and deal with this. And the cops are, you know, the the cult doesn't have a problem with that at all. Nope. Doesn't resist in the least. Oh my god. Oh, this episode. Craig's going, but there's something different in this. Yeah. And we Brad Dourif then sitting with the man in the iron lung. Yeah, having... going to talk to the man with the iron lung. <laughs> yes. Oh. We don't hear the conversation. No. We, we What we're doing is looking at what's going on outside yeah. and the searching for everybody um, because they did find then the man in the iron lung. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we see the, his wife and presumably like the mother of all these girls. Of all these girls. Well... <laughs> Of one girl who got copied 20 times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is nice. So, and she is super blonde, just like the girls are. Mm -hmm. Right? And, oh my god, this episode. Because as if it weren't crazy enough already. So then, Dennis comes out and says uh, to Frank that uh, he want, the man in the iron lung wants to talk to you. And I told him you understood. Yes. I told him you understood what was going on. And, well, and Frank sort of understands what's going on. He may think it's crazy. But he gets it. Like, he gets what, he what they're doing here. He knows why they're here. Yeah, he does. You're right. He doesn't uh, yeah. yeah. He may not agree with it, but you're right that he understands it. Like, Dennis and the, the man are right. And Dennis, of course, is charmed by this because he never knew what to do with the information he had. And now he is faced with people who actually decided to do something yes 
even if what they're doing it seems monstrous. And this is where we'll get into the part of the episode that is never explained in any way, shape, or form. Because nobody knows what, like, like because if the man did tell Brad Dourif exactly what was, Dennis Hoffman, as he's called, yeah. exactly what was going to be happening and what was going on, mm-hmm. we never hear it. Nope. Because he doesn't really explain it to Frank. Nope. For sure. What he tells Frank is, I'm going to die. And he had told all the girls, he is dying. He will not be able to be there with In them. the new world with them. Yes. Because that is what he, because he said, because Frank asked him, what did you do? And he said, I called all of them home. And I told them I wasn't going to be coming with them to the new world. And here's the interesting part. Uh, so now we find out that this wasn't a death cult. Like, those girls didn't kill themselves to start the end of the world. No. It wasn't the the cult leader's instruction to them. And the only conclusion you can come to is that they took it upon themselves to kill themselves to summon Dennis. Because they needed, like, someone who understood the prophecy to lead them into this new world, and so they killed themselves in a dramatic fashion relating to this theory about the end of the world to summon Dennis to be their new leader. Well, that's the only thing when you get to the end. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Okay. But thank you for... for, Yeah, yeah. that was my theory watching the episode. I watched it the second time, and I'm like, yeah, that's that's why they killed themselves. (laughs) They did it to summon Dennis. Yeah, because they didn't kill themselves because they were depressed or anything. Nope. It was something they had to do. Exactly. And, no, they, anyway. and they only did it after they found out, because they were no contact with their father this whole time. Yeah. And they did it because they knew he wasn't going to be there and they needed, they believed they needed a leader. So they had to find someone as who understood this as well as the father did. And so they killed themselves in a way designed to attract this specific attention to their cult and their goals. Yes, but who could have who could have predicted the hail? <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> and sorry. the answer is only they did and Dennis did. That's right. They needed someone who knew the hail was going to happen. They needed someone who knew the river of blood was going to happen. And so they killed themselves in a way that would make someone come forward who knew it was going to happen. So they they killed themselves to summon a new leader and Dennis finds his purpose in life. Because, spoiler alert, when he was calling Frank in to talk to the old man, we saw who the driver, the, the deputy, the police deputy who was driving a prison bus, we saw that it was an incredibly blonde dude. Yeah, you almost thought it was... Um... Okay, let, let's go. We go to the outside. Frank does not want these girls to be taken away. No. Okay, but but I and you don't blame the the, the cops for their idea. He says no. He said I've got to take them. I'm not going to have this whatever. Right? Yeah. He's, he doesn't want a Jonestown. He doesn't want to leave them here, ready to kill themselves. We're going to take them into protective custody. Two, two have already killed, killed themselves. themselves. Exactly. Like, it's completely oh. reasonable. And so he calls in, a deputy drives up with a prison transport yeah. to take them into protective custody. And as I said, just as Frank's going inside, we see that the uh, that driver. the driver is this creepy blonde dude 
who's well, you super almost blonde. Okay. Yeah, your thought is, is that what it, what's that? Mo, my initial thought was, so has one of the girls. Dressed in drag or something. And the answer is no. Because, yeah, what we didn't know is there were also 20 boys. Because Frank finds the journals inside after he talks to the man. And by the way, the speech the guy gives about Noah is fantastic. Oh, yeah. That, like, everyone thought Noah was insane until the rain started. Yeah. Like, everyone thinks, and then everyone who had laughed at him just, you know, hours earlier would do anything to get on the ark. Which is just, uh, it's it's a great image again. And again, beautifully written episode. But Frank, after talking to the old man, finds the scrapbooks that the two of them had been keeping, tracking every bit of these children's lives. Like, all of the incredible accomplished they had. And they're all, you know, accomplished people in their own ways. Right, they are the perfect Adams and Eve for the new world. And what he has there, right, is is that there are twenty ones for girls and twenty ones for boys. <laughs> and we see that the uh, the tr- the truck has driven off. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a prison bus. It's a prison bus. Yeah. the The prison bus I has driven it. off, and Brad Dourif is in it. Yes, but you have to remember that when Frank is is there, like he dies, the father. Oh, yeah. dies. The father dies while Frank is with him. At the same time, we flash to the prison bus, and all the girls who are in the bus know that he has died. Yep, they are praying. They are turned around and praying. And then and we see Brad Dourif at the is back. in the bus, the back of the bus. Yeah. And, and the the, the, the oldest of the girls, you know, takes his hand because again, he's the guy in charge. <laughs> he's the guy who can do prophecy now. It's it's quite an ending. And so the cops rush out to find it, and the bus they is abandoned because the Daniels have prepared escape vehicles. Yeah. Right? They are all they were ready for this. They knew what was going to happen. Oh what an ending. <laughs> And as Frank says, uh, and so Peter's like, well, what do we do now? And as Frank says, uh, right, uh, well, you know, we know where they're going to be on May 5th, 2000. They're going to be right back here. So there you go. And they didn't do anything illegal. No, no, they didn't do anything illegal. Uh, Right. So there's not a hell of a lot we can do. And this is all happening in the Ark building. And so Frank goes to get a... uh, an art for his daughter. A, uh, an astrolab for his daughter. Astrolab. Right? Yeah, from the gift shop. <laughs> the gift shop of the apocalypse bunker. Uh, and then we see back at home that Catherine is announcing that Jordan has got into a fantastic uh, day school, which, as she says, is going to have her set for the next 13 years through the end of high school, because this feeds into an elementary school, which feeds into a middle school, blah, 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 blah. And you've got this like look on Frank's face as Catherine is saying her life is set until 2010. And Frank is like, is there going to be a 2010? Because what Dennis said was that the entire West half of the United States, Western coast of the United States is going to fall into 300 feet into the ocean. And they live in Seattle. 
Okay, and he's going, should I move to that town? Should I move to Idaho is the look on his face. (laughs) Because that's this show. Yeah. So it's like, this is an episode that explains nothing. Nothing, nothing. Oh my god, it's like, I understand how people were frustrated by this show. Because I had to watch this twice to be sure that I knew what was going on. Because it refuses to explain anything. And we thank you for that. But that ep- but that scene where he's talking to the, the father, right? Yeah. The guy leading the cult. And he's like, and Frank assumes that this guy is, you know, a cultist who wants to remake the image and be God and do it in his own image. And the guy's like, I don't no. know. It's like somebody had to do something. Or, uh, you know, we were going to wipe out. And, I mean, the tragedy is that, as he says... I wanted to, at first, I wanted to convince the world and save the world, and I didn't find anything in the world worth saving, so I wanted to build a new set of humans who were good to each other and were worth building the new world. Well, I mean, it is, it is eugenics-y. They are, it is creepy that they're blonde, blue-eyed people, but at the same time, it comes from a, a just a good, honest place that all he wanted to do was find a way to keep humanity from being wiped out from this cataclysm that was coming. I would prefer it if like Hugo Drax from the movie Moonraker, he had had people full of biodiversity from all over the world, but you know, then we wouldn't have had the creepy cloning subplot, which is part of why this episode happened. Well, yes. And the, and the creepy cloning um, subplot goes, the hell are the children going to be like that they create? Yeah, I know. If they're all I brothers and sisters. They, he didn't really going. think that part through is my yeah, issue with that part of it. You know, I'm going... This is why Hugo Drax had a better idea is my yeah, point. And, well, but we can, we can just assume that in other parts of the world like atop the Himalayas Other people have set up similar things, yes. Other people have figured this out and hopefully... At some point, they right? will all meet each other in the new world. <laughs> in the new world. Well, but but here's the problem, right? Because Adam and Eve, as yeah. I said, I mean, I, I, I mean, I mean, people don't want to think about it, right? Well, no, it's part of God's plan, so He's going to make make sure that there's no genetic problems. Here. Well, no, but I mean, let's not forget He created and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Wait, wait. wait. They, yes, and Eve. Is made from Adam's bones. So yeah, it's not enough genetic diversity so she's there. Adam's child. Yes, but let's not forget that in addition to Adam and Eve, there was a whole world full of other people that, like the Bible, just glosses over. Oh no, because... no, but I'm not talking. I'm, I'm just talking about this guy because even with Noah, right? Yeah, there's the only yeah, there's only out, seven people left. Only, there's only him, yeah. his wife, his sons. Yeah. And their wives. Yeah. Oh no, totally. It's it's a it's a genetic diversity you problem. Know, Absolutely. Genetic- now, but again, I just want to point out that that wasn't a problem with Adam and Eve because the world was full of other people. When Cain gets cast out, he's like, "Go to the net land of Nod and live with those people." Like, what other people? Apparently there were other people this whole time that just didn't get mentioned in the Bible up until that point. Well, yes, if you're going to take all of this Terribly literally, yes, of course. If you're following the text of the Bible, yes. If you're following the text and they get kicked out of the perfect Garden of Eden and have to but it's wander. Like, 
But it is, it, I just think it's funny that they can't get kicked out of the Garden of Eden and like, there's a place to go where there's other people. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, when did they, all of them get created? Oh, it just didn't get mentioned. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't important to the, to the main story. No, line. it wasn't. No, but you're right. Like, <laughs> us modern people look at this and think, oh, we're going to have problems with genetic diversity if yeah. this is a, you know, like uh, breeding pairs of brothers and sisters who are all genetically identical. Yeah, because that's going to be a problem, you know, yeah. one or two generations down the line. But just the visuals are why they wanted it to be that way. No, I know. It's just like the deeply compelling visuals and the ability to hire one actress to play a bunch of different parts. Yes, and you would have. Um... No, I was thinking, of course, so atop the Andes, for example. Oh, like, yeah, there's plenty of places that you could do this. I mean, there's no shortage no, no, that, of places that are 4,000 feet in the air. Yeah, that, that there will be because... Yeah, yeah. No, no, that's that's not a problem. No, no, no it was, but, but then again, how would they get together afterwards? Again, you know, both, <laughs> like the, the floods settled down after 40 days. That's it's not true. like you don't know the body. Like the, the flood, water. the all floods the always they always recede. It's just the flood is the the flood is the climactic collapse of the edge of the world into the uh, into the ocean, and then the rising water flooding over everything. But then the water recedes. So you know, like there there the world comes back. It's just weird. Uh, and I mean, let's. Uh, we've talked about the flood myth before, so we don't have to get into it here. But yeah, like the, the waters do eventually recede. Or, I mean, in the real life flood, what actually happened, we all just build our new civilization 20 feet higher up the hill. Yeah. yeah. Is what actually happened. We don't stick as close to the water anymore. Yeah. We all, well, no, we do. It's just now the water is 20 feet higher. Well, yes. And that's, and of course... And we do know that there was this massive, well, there was. We have, we have like, archaeological have, evidence of all of these cities, well, not cities, but all of these, you know, inhabited settlements. settlements, thank you, is the word I was looking for, right, at the Mediterranean, like, 20 and 50 feet down. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the English Channel. Yep. That you were able to freely walk across, basically. Well, because they, because... That was the, and this was, God, it must have been about 20 years ago that they were, because they had to do an environmental scan yeah. before, because they were going to drill for oil. And, and they, found they found all of these settlements. These settlements, like under this. Under the channel, yeah. Under the water, right? And so, yeah. So at one point, it was just land and you could move. Yeah. And, uh, but we do know that the water was what? Uh, 30, 35 feet. Something so like that, yeah. It rose around the edges. I mean, they did find some settlement. If you can dive off of um, New Brunswick, uh, not New Brunswick, New, New, uh, British Columbia. British Columbia, as really? Well, it looks as if they're finding some stuff there. Yeah. Probably if you did it off the coast of the United States. You'd find the exact same thing. I know they found all of those things off of Ireland. Yeah. They found that. I mean, it's just, it's the world over. And that's why we have the flood story. Because, yeah, because at the end of the last ice age, you know, yeah. all of these people had to pick up and move because the water came up 35 
And that that's why the story of Atlantis, which becomes a myth, is probably it is also another indicator of the flood. Yeah, it's all about this flood yeah. that really happened when the Ice Age ended and suddenly all of this ice turned back into water and filled up the oceans. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating story. So yeah, yeah. uh just an amazing episode of television. Yeah, weird as anything. Super uh, weird, super yeah. hard to parse. Very yeah. frustrating in a lot of ways. And we all thank you, Daniel, for watching, for watching it twice. <laughs> so I can explain exactly why they did it. Because the show doesn't explain why they did it. But it is the only conclusion you can come to yeah. based on how they all act after Dennis arrives and how she looks at Dennis in his last shot of the episode. Yes. They all did this because they needed someone who had that their amount of faith and the knowledge to lead them. And that's what Dennis had unknowingly been spending his whole life trying to do. Because this episode is about, if you know the world is going to end, what do you do about it? And Dennis never knew what to do about it. And we never got the follow-up on May 5th when the world didn't end. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. But anyway. <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. We never got season four that would have wrapped all of this up. What we got was one very bad episode of The X-Files. Yes. All right. Episode two, The Thin White Line. Uh, an episode with a lot less to talk about in it. I was just going to say, The Thin White Line instead of The Thin Blue Line. Yeah. It's fine. It's, it's, a, it's a good, it's a solid Criminal Minds episode. It absolutely is a solid Criminal Minds episode. Yeah. Right yeah. down to the fact that there's a scene that we saw in an episode of Criminal Minds. <laughs> now, to be fair, both this scene and that scene are taken out of the, uh, based on the same, um, anecdote about Ed Kemper. Yeah. So it's like, they are, it's not like Criminal Minds was ripping off this episode. No, no. Uh, but yes. The, it is, it is a great moment when Frank is locked in with the guy, the killer. And the killer yeah. goes into how it takes them 33 seconds to get here, right? Yeah. Uh, imagine what we're him doing that. And Frank says, I think you misunderstand. The panic button isn't here for me. It's here for you. Yeah. <laughs> Which is such a great moment. Yeah. And th there's the poor guy. Oh. So. Oh. <laughs> you're not scared of me. <laughs> no, nope, he's like, unlike, yeah. unlike in the Criminal Minds episode where... Yeah. But that well, was Hutch that does get ready to beat that man to death in the Criminal Minds episode. Yeah, yes, well, that's a whole other. That's a and whole the, other conversation. That's based on um, uh, the other guy, Rent that starts with an R, Robert. Robert Wrestler. Wrestler, the, yeah. yeah, that's Robert Wrestler's always talked about that meeting he had. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, but it's, it's uh, it, yeah, it did. And we saw it then when they did the the two seasons of um which you know that the show that didn't continue was that David Lynch the beginnings of the of the uh, profiling oh the show oh yeah um no 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 the David Fincher show Mindhunter David Fincher show yeah, yeah. Mindhunter Mindhunter yeah yeah so that too. Um, anyway, it was, um, 
what can we say about it after after the convolution of the previous episode? It's it's refreshing to have an episode where at the start of the episode, a deranged I, I man. That, yeah. yeah, they did a really good job of the Hannibal Lecter stuff. Oh yeah, they did. I like I like that, but the and the, the flashbacks and, work well. The I mean, yeah. and that's the thing about this episode. Yeah. Like I'm not I'm not saying it's a bad episode of the show. It's just after a force majeure. <laughs> <laughs> kind of takes your breath away. It's so weird to come back to, all right, there's just a serial killer running around. Yeah, there's a serial killer, and he's been trained by a previous serial killer. This is... That Frank caught 20 years ago, who killed two FBI agents and almost killed Frank. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it's... Okay, so, um, a guy... We, we start with a guy, he goes to a house, and he has delusions that a woman understands that she has to be sacrificed. Yes. You know, the idea that... Uh, the agreement that you have, uh, and is this the same thing he talked about in the first episode? That it's like the agreement they had to be killed is that they opened the door, that their door was unlocked. It might be the same ep- killer he was talking about in the first episode. Uh, but anyway, so she opens the door and he stabs her, to t- and he stabs her brutally. She is not killed though, because the only re- reason Frank gets on this case is that he's at the hospital picking up yeah. Catherine, who's working on something. And he sees this woman being rushed into emergency and he sees a crescent shaped cut on her hand. And he looks at his, his own hand and he's like, uh oh. Yeah. But this guy's in jail. Yeah, that guy's in jail. Uh, and so he goes to Bob and he says, you know, what's going on with this? And Bob just assumes it's a push in robbery. Or a robbery that she interrupted, and it's too bad because, like, they had had a track record of no kill deaths during robbery for X amount of time. Like, they had a really good streak going. Yeah, but he doesn't think there's anything more going on here. But and then that night, Frank's uh, like, "Oh, I don't know about that." But that same night, uh-huh. uh, Fra- uh, a guy goes and murders in another robbery, murders a guy at a convenience store or a liquor store. And cuts the same symbol into the hand. And so Frank knows exactly who it is. And he tells Bob. And Bob is like, should we go pick this guy up? And then Frank's like, oh, no, he's in jail. <laughs> he tells him, yeah. So we've got we've got someone who's been trained. Mm-hmm. It's not a copycat in the sense that he is an outside force copycatting somebody he thinks. No, this was the guy's wife in jail yeah and what's and that's the interesting thing about this episode frank knows who the killer is immediately because he kept tabs on this guy who again killed two fbi agents he knew and almost killed frank so it's like frank had every reason to keep tabs on this guy and he knew that this guy as you said was his wife in jail his cellmate and they had a romantic relationship and were closer than any people could possibly be that guy got paroled two years ago and has disappeared since yeah and so all they can do is try to figure out okay well where is like where Where is this guy yeah right and he's obviously been transformed frank thinks frank Uh believes he's obviously like the killer has manipulated this man into becoming him essentially and recreating his crimes. And so the question is, do we go and talk to him and try and get something from him? Well, Frank initially doesn't want to do it. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. 
no because he thinks, and this is the key part, he thinks they have time to catch the killer. Yeah. Because this guy killed four people, and then there the original, he killed four people, and then he went fallow and didn't kill anybody for a while. And then there was an anonymous tip spotting him, and that's what led them to the warehouse where the where he ambushed the FBI agents and mm-hmm. killed them. Yeah. And so Frank figures they've got two more victims before this guy's going to go fallow, and maybe they can catch him without having to deal with the Hannibal Lecter character. But then they find two dead bodies in a car from three weeks ago with the cuts on their hand, and it turns out they've already got the four victims, Yeah, meaning they don't have any choice. He's going to have to go talk to this guy. Yep. Oh. And he does. And, and he, he does. I mean, I think the, the, the discussion between the warden and oh. Frank good and the warden says finally okay here's the paper you have to sign you have Mm -hmm. to understand that if he takes you hostage we will not save you we will not negotiate we will not make any efforts to like protect your life which yikes but Mm -hmm. yeah but the guy has already killed four uh three inmates and a prison guard yep and that's why he's locked around yeah, Jesus. Proud of it. Dragged them around the prison. Proud of it. Yeah. Well, after his after his wife got paroled, you know, mm-hmm. what did he have to live for anymore? Mm-hmm. And so Frank, uh, Frank, of course, talks with Catherine about this before she he goes to meet her, which is because Frank was in a position where he could have executed this guy instead of arresting him. The guy yes. had just killed two FBI agents. He almost killed Frank. Mm-hmm. And he's like... Did I do the right thing by not executing him? No one would have questioned me. Everyone yeah. would have signed off on it. And four men, well, now eight, eight people would still be alive. Yeah. If I had just executed this man. And she's like, but that's not something you could have done. It's just not who you are. You mm-hmm. could never just kill someone. Yep. And that's something Frank has to cope with. Mm-hmm. That knowledge that, like, holding up to his code and holding up to living the world the way he wants it to got eight people killed. Which is, you know, it's not an easy thing if you're talking about relative morality. Mm-hmm. That isn't an easy thing to deal with, is it? It's like, what use is a moral code if it's getting a lot of people killed? Like, what is it accomplishing? And is this moral code just to make you feel good about yourself? So yeah, Frank goes to see him, and as Frank says, we can't just have him in a cage. He, I need him to open up to me. We have to be face-to-face. And that's when he makes them sign the form. Which, you know, totally understandable. They can't be getting sued by Catherine because Frank chose to walk into a room with a serial killer. Yeah. You yeah. understand where they're coming from. Oh, yes, and Frank insists that the man take off the... Uh, the shackles. The shackles and everything else so he can just sit there and the guy wants to make a deal with him. He wants them to turn off all the lights. Because they keep yeah. the lights on 24 hours a day. So not only is it blindingly bright, but it is constantly humming. Mm-hmm. Because they're punishing him. They're fluorescent lights. So yeah, They hum constantly. And they okay. put the hum, by the way, they put the hum under for the entire scene. Mm-hmm. Just, to, just to get you in this guy's headspace. And so Frank pretends that he's there to do the um, the the serial killer. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you call it? Um, 
Oh god, the the psychological profile, right? Yeah. The the survey of serial killers that they did with every serial killer to try and yeah. build the con the thing of profiling. And so the guy tells a story from his past, which is of course a lie. <laughs> it's someone else's story. Uh but I mean that's the thing. We do know that this guy murdered his grandparents. There wasn't yeah. a humiliation about not being able to read, but something happened to him when he was a child. Yep. And he misbehaved and he got sent off with his grandparents. And again, like Ed Kemper, he killed... Ed Kemper only killed his grandmother, not his grandfather. But, uh... Actually, wait, did he kill both of them? I'm trying to remember. Ed Kemper. But the point is, they are drawing heavily from the Ed Kemper story here. In that part of it. Without the most interesting part of the Ed Kemper story. Which, of course, is that uh, he turned himself in. And he's the only serial killer to have ever done that. (laughs) The only serial killer to have ever turned himself in. The only self-aware serial killer who realized killing wasn't going to fix whatever was going on in him. Ed Kemper's a weird story, man. Yeah. Because every time you see a version of the, uh, it takes them X amount of time to get in here, right? Uh, it, it's shown by characters a threat. But if you listen to the story John Douglas tells, Ed was joking with him. And Ed was teasing him, and he had never felt threat and the whole idea. And Ed did mention that it takes them X amount of time to get there, and he felt threatened. But in retrospect, he really felt that Ed was just, you know, playing with him. Because Ed's bored. Yeah. And he never did feel any threat from the guy. It's, it is a fa- Dude's a fascinating character. Uh, but anyway, so he talks to him, right? And we do... Uh, it is a wonderful profiling scene. Mm-hmm. Right, and he tries to figure out why the guy, what the guy did during after the four killing, like what he did in that fallow period before the FBI chased him down. Mm-hmm. And what Frank manages to figure out is he all he did was prepare himself for the FBI because he called the cops on himself because mm-hmm. it had all been like the four killings had been a preparation for what he really wanted to do have a showdown with the authorities. The Mm -hmm. same authorities that abandoned, that the social services abandoned him as irredeemable. His problem is with authority and always was. And the other killings were just to get authorities' attention so he could get back at the system, as far as we can tell. And as he says, uh, and, you know, Frank tries to get him to say, you know, you loved this man. Don't let him destroy himself. And the killer says, what you don't understand is we essentially became one person. Yeah. Like I'm him. He's me. I'm not making him do this anymore. He's me. So this is just going to happen. And as he says, as long as I hear that humming as torturous, I know that he's out there, right? That he's out there continuing my work. It's a great moment. No, it's it's a great, and Frank then realizes, of course, oh, shit. That's shit. what, that is the moment that makes him realize that the guy called the cops on himself. Yeah, the guy called the cops on himself, and this guy is going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we then cut to the killer doing just that. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So we get another, we get a recreation. Frank is 20 years older and wiser. Uh, mm-hmm. The guy doesn't wait around for them to get inside. Like, the minute they get to the... uh starts shooting. He starts shooting out the window at them. Yeah. 
uh, which is great. Frank makes his way in. He gets close to the guy. He manages to get the rifle away from him. And he essentially, you know, begs him to understand that he is his own person and he doesn't have to do this. Yeah. However. However. uh, Bill, uh, yeah, uh, shows up and shoots him. Yep, just kills him. Because he can't take a chance. Well, no, and Frank says, well, why'd you... And Bill just looks at him and says, for the future. Yeah. It's he's, like, not gonna, he's not yeah. going to play. He's not going to take the chance Frank took. Yeah. And there's your... But uh, because this episode... The almost the end of the episode. Because then we get the epi- the moment of this episode that elevates this above anything Criminal Minds ever attempted, let alone accomplished. Yeah, and then and then okay, but here's here's the point. Frank says to, he said, now the hard part is you have to tell yeah. the family, right? Mm-hmm. And then it it's dead. You think it's all over? Yep. And it's not. And that ending is just sad. It's powerful. It's unbelievable. You see our killer. We kiss you. You go back to the cell that the Hannibal Lecter is in. Yeah, Hannibal Lecter is in here. Yeah. And he's lying on the bed, getting ready to go to sleep. Yeah. And one light goes off. And then another light goes off. Oh, my God. And, like, it's just a slow process of these lights. And and, and it's like, and he can't believe it's happening. And not only that, but he starts to cry. And then the episode ends with him lying in bed, weeping in the dark. Yeah. And you're like, am I having an emotional reaction to this serial killer's pain? And you realize yeah. you are. Because, like I said, this is something Criminal Minds never would have attempted, let alone accomplished. Yeah. Well, the thing is, and it's because Frank yeah. feels the emotional pain. Exactly. Like, no matter how much of a monster this guy is, Frank can't stop feeling. Yeah. And understands this man's pain yep. at the loss of his significant other. Of his soulmate. Yeah. The loss of his soulmate. And he turns off the light. Jesus. So he has them turn off the light. It's so powerful. Oh, it, it, it is a... Uh, for a very pedestrian episode Epis- in ways. Yeah. The ending is just elevates this episode to yeah. be like, Wow. I'm like, like, again, that's what I'm saying. Please. No, I was going to say, you understand it all. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Whatever. This was still a human being who had a relationship with one other person, however warped and... However monstrous. I mean, this is bringing together sort of this business of why Frank couldn't kill him. Yep. And what Catherine said, whereas Bill who doesn't have that empathy gene, shall we say. <laughs> Not the same way, no. Great, great, to the extent that Frank has it. Nope. So that I take. Um, there, therefore, Bill understands the stakes. Yeah. I am sure, while it was off screen, you know, Frank discussed all of this with Bill. 
Well, and I mean, that's the thing. The ending of this episode says, in no uncertain terms, that Frank can never shut himself off to someone's humanity. Right. Ever. Never. No matter who that person is, Frank can't shut off himself off to their humanity. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a monster who killed his friends and almost killed him. Yeah. Frank will always be there for humanity and always... And, well, we're not going to talk about what Frank does when he comes up again. I'm going to stop talking if people haven't seen the show. But let's just say that this is a question that will be tested uh, by the show. A belief of Frank's that will go on to be tested. That everyone has humanity and everyone deserves to be seen as a thinking, feeling creature. Yeah. Oh, my God. I had forgotten the ending of this episode. Yeah. No, because I'm watching the whole episode, right? I'm like, no, it's just, it's a perfectly, like you say, when you start the episode, this is a perfectly good episode of Criminal Minds. Probably one of the better episodes of Criminal Minds. Yep. Like, yeah, that's, that's what you're getting out of this episode watching. You're like, yeah, this is just a really good episode of Criminal Minds. And we were like, well, they weren't all going to be great. They weren't all going to be perfect. Uh, maybe this is the end of the run of just amazing episodes that we got. And, and then, then you get to the last scene, and you're like, oh no. This this has something bigger in mind. This has something bigger to say. And yep. because you end up feeling so sad for this man. For this serial killer. You don't quite get it when the first light goes off. Nope. You know, and the second, and then when they're all off, and you can sort of you he's not like you can sobbing. hear no. him sort of sobbing, right? Quietly. Yeah, because he knows. Yeah, he knows the only person who left in the world who cared about him is dead. Yeah. There was one person who cared if he lived or died. And now that person is dead. And it's his fault. Yeah. That's, it's tough. It's tough, this episode. At the end, it wasn't tough watching. No, but the, the rest of the episode, yeah, it's just like, no, I've seen this. I've seen this episode. I've watched 15 seasons of this on Criminal Minds, but damn that ending. That ending just takes it, what I always say, give them a good ending, and I tell oh. you, this one, cha- the ending just changes. Changes the, the entire episode. Yeah, and I'm not saying it rehabilitates the episode, like the episode needed to be rehabilitated. No, it's, it doesn't. The, there's it's a perfectly no good episode. No. There's no rewrite needed in the episode. They made the exact episode they should have made. Yeah. It's, it's just, just that they, they, they didn't do a twist. What they did was they just dug into their themes. What their themes are throughout the whole show, as mm-hmm. opposed to. So they give us this in just this one brilliant shot. Moment. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's prosaic. It is yeah. the rest of the episode. It's just it's it's functional. It's prosaic. It's a good serial killer story. And then they're oh. like, "This is a no. This is a part of a narrative we're telling about these characters, yeah, right, and about the world as the way we see it and as the way Frank see it. And like even an episode like this, we're going to use for that greater point. It's again, like, this is the kind of thing that, like, I can't believe I forgot this episode. But then again, at the time, I didn't get what they were doing. No, I didn't get what they were doing with this show. That's always with our rewatches. Yeah, we really do. Okay, so now, speaking of our rewatches, 
Are you ready for something fun? Okay. So, in the credits of every episode of Millennium, I see the name John Peter Kusakis. Yeah. Does that name mean anything to you? I'm just asking you, I'm not going to like, you know, uh, be coy about this. I will tell you if the name means nothing to you. No, no, I'm I'm going, I have seen the name before, but you have. I don't remember. Exactly. All right, I'm going to tell you why. Ahem. John Peter Kusakis is the name of Vincent Gustafero's character from season four of Wise Guy. The guy who ran the medical waste cartridge business. So, uh, John Peter Kusakis is a longtime Hollywood producer. He worked on a bunch of things. He actually was one of the producers on Unsub. There. So there you go. Yeah, that's a connection. And he has spent the past, like, 15 years or however long it's been on as one of the showrunners of NCIS Los Angeles. So there you go. But the key part is, you might be wondering... Well, why was a character named John Peter Kusakis? Because, and this is the key part, that those episodes, like, you got to remember, no one planned on doing that storyline, mm-hmm. right? That yeah. They had to do that on the fly when Ken Wall was willing to come back for the last four episodes of the season. Yeah. You know, after he quit the show in the middle of filming the second, um, the second uh, episode, right? Yeah. Uh, right? The second episode of that final arc, he quit the show. And so that what happens is, now this is a, a little behind the scenes thing from Hollywood that we've probably mentioned before, but who knows? Um, when you name a character, it helps if that character doesn't have a last name because then you don't have to do, you know, the, you don't have to do a legal search because if it's an incredibly common name, nobody's going to sue you. But if yeah. it's a name with just a few people that have it, there's a chance they might sue you for the way they specifically have been presented in the episode. Now, a way you can get around that if you don't have the time and money to do a legal search, for example, if you're making this up as you go along because your star just quit your show, but now he's come back and you have to create a new story arc for him. What you do is you phone up someone you know and you have them sign a piece of paper that says, I legally assent to let release the use of my name specifically. So if anyone else, another John Kusakis comes up and says, is this about me? You can sign a piece of paper that you can show them a piece of paper signed by uh, and notarized by an attorney that says, no, it's named after this guy. He signed a piece of paper confirming it was named after him. <laughs> And so that's why the character was named John Peter Kusakis. Because they phoned up a producer they knew who they had worked on at like at Unsub and plenty of other shows. They're like, John, can we name a character after you? Sure, send over the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why that character is and named what, that. Yeah. And what we want is paperwork from criminal minds. Yeah. Oh no, see, no last names. Oh, this is what I mean. Yeah. I don't so far, but if if they do decide to kill us off. If they do decide to kill us off, yeah, we'll need paperwork for that. <laughs> oh, man, the podcasters who got murdered for criticizing criminal minds. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. It's not impossible. <laughs> the metaverse. <laughs> exactly. I still think it's so weird. 
that yeah, the are- that our podcast uh, is a the, that it's our podcast canonic- canonically exists in the world of criminal minds, but in the world of criminal minds, it's a true crime podcast. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's funny. We hadn't thought about it, but yeah, Somebody it's, at, yeah. it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, do you do true crime? And no, I no, but in criminal minds, we do. <laughs> yes, in the world of criminal minds, we do. Because all of the cases we talk about happened in that world. And we're a podcast in that world. So there you go. Oh, my God. A podcast in the world of criminal minds. All right. So, uh, but yeah, like, that's the thing. Watching this whole episode, like, it's weird to say that I guess I underestimated the show Millennium. Because I watched the whole episode. I'm like, yeah, this is a perfectly good episode of television. And then you get to that ending. You're like, no, they were playing on a higher level than any other show. The whole show is set up for that last scene. Yeah. Like, and then you realize that, yeah, they made the whole episode so they could make that scene. Yeah. And you're like, yep. Okay. This show is, this show is working on a higher level than we're used to. It's, it's a better show than the X-Files was. You know? The X-Files. As I always say, the X-Files was just fun. It was fun. This show is is going for something bigger than the X-Files yeah. ever attempted. Yeah. And it's going to get weird in season two, but we're going to see how that met gels with season yeah. one, because famously it got so weird in season two that Darren Morgan and, uh, not Darren Morgan, um, James Morgan and Glenn Wong had a falling out with, um, Chris with Carter. Chris Carter and didn't talk to him again until essentially they did the X-Files reboot in the 2010s. Like, I mean, they came back for that and Darren Morgan came back for that and it was great. Both of Darren Morgan's episodes are perfect. Um, but yeah, like they didn't talk to him for like a decade after over a decade after the falling out. And you think it's because it got too weird and they took it away from the serial killer stuff of the first season. But, you know, the third season, it's not like the third season is like the first season. So, you know. What happened? What? Well, I mean, I, I maintain that what happened was, you know, the network said, if you got one a third season, you just have to do a second hour of the X-Files every week. But that's my theory. We'll talk about that when we get there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, like, I just want to, like, doff my cap to, cri- for, I almost said Criminal Minds, to Millennium for even in its most bog standard episode to blow us away, to be able to blow us away like that. Yeah. It's no one, no one pulls this off. This is, this is an astonishing. Yeah. 47 minutes of television. It is. Only because, because you don't. That- that and, last shot, yes, and and that's the genius of the episode. Yeah. You don't know, you don't realize what they're setting you up for. No. Yeah. All right. So oh, yes. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> all right. So that's that. Next episode. Hey, are you uh are you ready for more religious episodes? Hey, it's my brand. What can I say? Right. Boom! Ep- next week, episode 15, Sacrament. When his sister-in-law is kidnapped at her child's baptism, Frank must calm his brother and find the kidnapper before it's too late. Covenant. Frank is asked to develop a psychological profile and sheriff who confessed to murdering his entire family. 
and it's the titles. And then... Sacrament and Covenant. It's meaningful. Yes, and we're going to get Lamentation this season, too. Oh, my... Well, no, we're only... We're only two weeks away from Lamentation, which is thought by some to be the best episode of... Uh, one of the best because it's a two-parter, and that's what we're gonna have to talk about. How are we gonna handle this? Because eighteen and nineteen are a two-parter, but we're gonna talk about that off mic, so don't worry. Yeah, we uh, okay. Lamentation, powers, principalities, thrones, and dominions is the yeah. second part. Yeah, it's interesting because they're kind of a two-parter, but honestly, we might. I mean, Maybe it's a we situation talk where about next week. But Maybe you want to do through three, ep- episodes three episodes? And make it, it might be a little bit long. Yeah, well, it will be, but it might be worth doing just because of... You well, want I mean, limitations and powers, principalities, oh, these to be together. together. Uh, but honestly, you might, watch, you might watch Lamentation and say, we should do a whole episode about Lamentation. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is again. This, we're gonna have this conversation no, off mic next week. We're g- at least gonna be talking about Sacrament and co- uh, Covenant. We yeah. might be talking about Walkabout too. So there you go. All right. Uh, we'll be back here for that. Uh, but until then, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, if there's any profiling related fiction you'd like us to check out, drop us a line at profilingcriminalminds at gmail dot com. If you're listening to this on an app or podcatcher, please be sure to rate and review. That's how people find out about the show. We'll be back here next week for those episodes. But until then, I'll say that's right. Au revoir. And have a good week.